We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Away we go, episode 30 of the Al Galdi podcast. Yes, episode 30. We have reached 30, the dirty 30. It is the Laurent Landry episode of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, April 1st, 2021. It is opening day, the start of the baseball season on what is April Fool's Day. We are all fools for caring about sports as much as we do, but you are not a fool for listening to this podcast. You are smart. You are wise. You are cutting edge for making this podcast a part of your day. Pat yourself on the back. You've made a very good choice in listening to this. But great to have you with us on actually what is not just opening day, but a day of celebration. A day of celebration, at least if you are the Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, Danny. Happy Thanksgiving. Dan Snyder buying out the Washington football team's three disgruntled minority owners, formally approved by the NFL owners on Wednesday. And not just that, but formally approved reportedly unanimously. 32-0. You can never overstate the extent to which the Danny has won in this situation. I'll do a lot more on that in moments. Also, major Nationals news on Wednesday, and the news, not good. The Nats to be without five players and one staff member for their opening night game against the New York Mets at Nationals Park on Thursday night due to a player having tested positive for COVID-19. The Nats made it through all of their spring training without any positive COVID-19 tests, and then we get this news the day before opening day. The day before Opening day, you're going to be without, we find out, 
five players and a staff member because a player tested positive for COVID-19. It turns out off a test that was taken the morning of the final exhibition game of the Grapefruit League season. We'll do a lot on that coming up. Also, something else that I know for me was impossible to ignore on Wednesday. The Masson app. Where is it? What's going on here? You know, Masson on January 25th announced that it would be launching an app to finally provide for in-market streaming of Nationals and Orioles games. Today is opening day. The app still is not out. This is such classic Masson. You announced something more than two months ago now. It's opening day. And the something you announced, an app for in-market streaming, okay, not exactly something that's, you know, a foreign concept here or revolutionary, you still have not put it out. You can never overstate the extent to which Masson is a complete mess. And the way Masson is run on the cheap, how much damage that is doing to both fan bases. You know, it's not just damage to Nationals fans. It's also damage to Orioles fans. But my God, I cannot get over this. It's opening day. You put it out January 25th. You're coming out with an app. Okay, great. It's still not out. Uh, I will give you a proper scolding of Masson a little bit later on. But yes, this episode of the podcast, the peaking of our previews for the Nationals and Orioles 2021 seasons. On Wednesday's podcast, I gave you my biggest questions for the Nats and Doe's in 2021. On this episode, I do have two special guests for you. Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com, my co-host, on the Nats Chat Podcast, and Orioles insider Dan Conley of the Athletic Baltimore. Two guys who know their teams extremely well, have covered them for years. Looking forward to our conversations. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi Podcast at Yahoo.com. So today, Thursday, is a very big day, in case you don't know. Uh, it is baseball's opening day, as we've just been discussing. We have a very big game for the Capitals tonight. Don't lose sight of that. Caps at Barry Trotz and the New York Islanders at seven, right? Caps and Isles have essentially been the top two teams in the East Division uh, for so much of the season so far. Another clash coming on Thursday night. Uh, the Wizards do play on Thursday night, for whatever that's worth. Wiz at the lowly Detroit Pistons at seven o'clock. And Ron Rivera is speaking on this Thursday. Don Ron, set to speak publicly for the first time since free agency started, a 9 a.m. Zoom press conference. Ron Rivera speaking to reporters, addressing Ryan Fitzpatrick, the quarterback situation, Curtis Samuel, William Jackson III, what's going on at linebacker, what's going on at tight end. What does Ron think of the Danny now being even more of a majority owner? First off, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, Danny, we got you on that. But a whole lot of topics on the table for Ron Rivera to be asked about on this Thursday. We're going to have a lot to unpack on this podcast on Friday. But that's Friday. Today is Thursday. And yes, Danny, you now have even more control. As I said, you can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Got this email from Richard Perron. I say Washington football team is not an option for the new team name. I vote for Washington Snyderites. Since he now owns the whole team, he should own the whole name. What do you think? If he gets new investors, he could just add a plus, as in Washington Snyderites plus. Uh, Richard, not sure that's going to be going down. 
But yeah, I guess that is more of a possibility now of what happened on Wednesday. Dan Snyder getting formal NFL ownership approval of becoming even more of an NFL owner. So it was now two Wednesdays ago that we had multiple reports that Danny was going to be buying out the three disgruntled minority investors in the Washington football team, Dwight Shaw, Robert Rothman, and Fred Smith. It was on Wednesday that at this annual league meeting, the owners' meetings taking place virtually here due to the COVID-19 pandemic, that there was formal approval by the NFL owners of Danny doing this, of Danny buying out Shaw, Rothman, and Smith at $875 million with a $450 million debt waiver. The approval reportedly, again, unanimous, 32-0. Any NFL ownership transaction has to be approved by three quarters of the NFL owners. So you needed 24 out of the 32. You got 32 out of the 32. More on that in a moment. Rothman, Shaw, and Smith, they had been, of course, minority investors. Rothman and Shaw had each owned, to be precise, 15.168% of the Washington football team. Smith had owned 10.163%. So the new breakdown is as follows for Washington football team ownership. Dan Snyder's ownership now 80.958%. I saw it that Danny now has full 100% ownership of the team. That's actually technically not true. It would be the Snyder family that now has 100% full ownership of the team because Dan's uh, Dan's sister, Michelle, she has 12.552% ownership. And Dan's mom, Orlette Snyder, she has 6.489% ownership. But yeah, I mean, technically speaking, uh, the Snyder family is in charge. And yeah, the Danny has more power than ever before. Again, essentially 81% ownership now of the Washington football team. Now, some of you have suggested to me that Danny being allowed to buy out the minority owners and become even more of a majority owner is happening only so that he can then be forced to sell the team. Uh, look, never say never, but it sure does not appear that that's the case, okay? There has been zero indication that that is the case. Nothing in the reporting of this situation over the last eight days has indicated that this may be the case. And the fact that Danny on Wednesday got 32-0 approval, I mean, yeah, I guess you could say, hey, the owners all wanted to approve this because they all then are going to make Danny sell the team. I guess maybe, okay, but that's not the sense you're getting here. The sense you're getting here is the other NFL owners were tired of the public infighting between Dan and the minority owners. The other NFL owners wanted this to go away. And so this is going to make it go away because the NFL owners understand they're not going to be making Dan go away because I think they've been told that this Beth Wilkinson investigation, the findings for which we are still awaiting, isn't going to reveal any bombshell to where you can reasonably oust Dan Snyder as owner. I think what's ultimately going to come of this sexual harassment scandal is a lot of he said, she said stuff. And that doesn't mean that these things didn't happen. Okay, personally, I tend to think a lot of these things did happen. But you can't just go by, well, I think this happened. So ergo, I'm going to oust you from being an NFL owner. Like, no, it doesn't work that way. And if Danny was about to be ousted, I don't think you get this approval. If Danny was about to be suspended for, say, a year's time, 
I'm not sure you get this approval. I think you get this approval because the other NFL owners know Danny ain't going nowhere. We want this infighting to stop because it's embarrassing to the league. It's embarrassing to the rest of us. And truth be told, I wouldn't be stunned at all if other NFL owners are guilty of some of the things that Danny and the Washington football team have been accused of in the sexual harassment scandal. It's not good for business, okay? It's not good for business that this stuff is out there. And if you're an NFL owner and you've got some skeletons in your closet, you want all this stuff to go away, okay? So you're not going to pick a fight with Danny if it's not absolutely certain that, okay, he did these things, he's got to be out. Like, no, there's a lot of gray area with this stuff. You just kind of want it to go away. And you certainly don't want this public infighting continuing between Danny and Rothman and Shar and Smith, because this alleged smear campaign that Danny's talked about and the things that have come out, right? Never forget the lead up to that initial Washington Post article last July, the thing that truly ignited the sexual harassment scandal and what was anticipated and what was rumored to be in that Washington Post report and how ugly all of that stuff was. And even if all of it was not true, just the fact that it was out there, that it was in the bloodstream, I mean, don't forget how insane some of this stuff was. Dan Snyder abuses drugs and alcohol. Dan Snyder bribing NFL officials, some of whom had made $2 million off Dan. Jay Gruden did drugs and participated in sex parties. Washington had pimped out cheerleaders to sweet holders. The late convicted sex trafficker, Jeffrey Epstein, was somehow involved in all of this. That's not good for business. All of this stuff being out there, even if it was total fake news, not good for business. And the belief is, at least from Team Danny, that this stuff was put out there by a smear campaign that was funded in part by Dwight Shaw and that included participation in part by none other than Bruce Allen, right? One of the most fascinating aspects of this entire thing. You've had a whole lot in the way of lawsuits. You've had a whole lot in the way of reports. The NFL wanted all of this to go away. And I think that's what so much of this has been about. So you take a step back here and you consider now what has happened. You have Dan Snyder. He's been the Washington football team's majority owner for 20 plus years. It has been a 20 plus year run of dreck. It has been an awful run. No one can ever say anything other than Dan Snyder has been a very bad pro sports team owner. Okay, now maybe that changes. I hope like heck that changes, but it ain't been the case. Not so far. So you have that. You have the guy accused of presiding over a franchise for which there was rampant sexual harassment. You have a guy in the midst of a very ugly feud with his minority investors. And yet, for this guy, for this owner, the NFL, A, allows him to stay on board, B, become even more of a majority owner, C, makes a special exemption for him to buy out the minority owners in approving this application for a $450 million debt waiver, D, allows Danny to buy out the minority investors at a discounted price of $875 million, and E, and yes, we've drilled all the way down to an E, grants 32-0 unanimous approval for all of this to go down. If that's not winning, I don't know what is. It's like the Breaking Bad clip I was playing for you last week. Walter White has blown up Gus Fring. Walter's on the phone with his wife, Skyler, and he says very succinctly, I won. Yes, Walter had won, just like Danny has won. I won. Yes, Danny, you have won. There's no other way to put this. And what are we to make now 
of that Sports Junkies report. March 5th, the Junkies say that they've received information from Beth Wilkinson's report on her findings in the investigation. And the top two recommendations per the Junkies, one, force the owner to divest ownership of his team. Two, suspend the owner for a significant period to allow time to repair the team's infrastructure and culture. I.e., either get this guy out of here as an owner or at the very least suspend the guy for a significant period of time. And the radio station, 106.7 The Fan, just a few days later, walked back the report big time, but did say, we do believe in the authenticity of the documents we reviewed. Well, what do we think now? Because if either of these things is actually happening, there's no way the events of the last eight days come out. This news that he's being allowed to buy out the minority investors, the the minority investors, this news that he's being allowed to buy out the minority investors at, again, a discounted price of $875 million, this news that he's being granted this $450 million debt waiver, and this news that all of this was approved unanimously. Dan Snyder is 56. For Richie Riches, that's quite young. And barring some major health issues or barring another scandal, and you know, who knows what's to come here, right? Because the guy's track record ain't exactly sparkling. But barring the unforeseen, Dan Snyder ain't going nowhere, and he's now more powerful than he's ever been. And all you can say is you hope that somehow, some way, the man currently presiding over football operations for the Washington football team, Ron Rivera, is strong enough, is capable enough, is empowered enough, is cagey enough to handle whatever pitfalls may come his way in dealing with the Danny. Because you know the pitfalls are going to come. What you hope for is that Ron Rivera is adept at handling all of this. And this to me is why we've had the Ron Rivera baptism of fire over the last few months, and really now you could say a few years, in terms of Ron bringing in his people, bringing in people loyal to him, building up his army, gaining himself some capos, Don Ron establishing his mafia, his guys, people beholden to him, so that if the stuff ever goes down between Ron and Danny, Ron has got himself some backup. But yeah, man, we in less than a month went from that junkies report of Dan potentially being ousted to Dan not only not being ousted, but Dan buying out the three unhappy minority investors at a discounted price with help from the NFL from a standpoint of a $450 million debt waiver and all of this getting unanimously approved. Think about that. The turnaround is incredible. You can never understate the extent to which Danny has won. I won. So let's get now to the Nationals on this opening day 2021. And, you know, opening day is supposed to be about sunshine and optimism and hope springing eternal. And here we are, opening day 2021. First of all, the weather is supposed to be brutal. It's only supposed to get into the 40s on this Thursday in the D.C. area. Supposed to be windy. It's rainy on Thursday morning. And you have this COVID-19 problem that came out of nowhere for the Nationals on Wednesday, like a piano falling out of the sky, the Nats get smacked with this COVID-19 positive test result early Wednesday morning. And the bottom line is this, the Nats are set to be without five players and one staff member for this opening night game against the New York Mets 
at Nationals Park. Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, 709 first pitch. Uh, oh yeah, you're going to be without five guys and one staff member. Now, who the five guys are, we do not know. Who the one staff member is, we do not know. We do know it's not Max Scherzer. That much we do know because Max Scherzer flew back from Florida on his own private flight. See, seven-year, $210 million contracts have their perks. Uh, but Max Scherzer is not in danger of not starting on Thursday night, at least as best as we can tell. But we don't know who is not going to be available to the Nats. We certainly expect to find that out as Thursday goes on. So on Wednesday, we learned that a Nats player had tested positive for COVID-19. The round of testing that produced the positive test occurred on Monday morning, shortly before the Nats' final exhibition game, that two-all tie with the Houston Astros on Monday afternoon. The Nats, though, and this is the killer part of all this, did not receive word of the positive test until early Wednesday morning. So the test happened on Monday morning. You don't find out that somebody tested positive until early Wednesday morning. What had happened on Tuesday, right? The Nats had flown on a chartered flight from Florida to the Washington, D.C. area, right? You broke camp, you're coming back up north. You fly on a team chartered flight, and it turns out one of the guys on that flight, we believe, had COVID-19. And I say we believe because, you know, it is possible this ends up being a false positive. More on the potential for that in a moment. But four other players and a staff member have been deemed close contacts of the player who tested positive. All six people are quarantining all six people not going to be available for opening night against the Mets. And who knows how much longer after that? That was unclear as of Wednesday. Now, the Nats on Wednesday did undergo two more rounds of COVID-19 testing. The standard Major League Baseball approved test that gives you results within 36 hours and a rapid test that returns results quicker. You get any more positive tests, though, and you got more people who are going to be ineligible for an undefined period of time. This sucks. There's no other way to say this. And again, we don't know who we're talking about here. Like, are we talking about, you know, Juan Soto and Josh Bell and Kyle Schwarber and like a bunch of key Nationals players? Are we talking more about bench guys? Like, what exactly are we looking at here? There were reports on Wednesday that the Nationals are calling back up Luis Garcia, one of their top position playing prospects. So, that might be indicative of who is tested positive. Luis Garcia is a second baseman. Uh, so maybe he's set to play second base for, say, Josh Harrison. But we don't know. It's all speculative at this moment. There are two particular killer aspects of this situation, though, to me, from a Nationals perspective. So the first one is this. The Nats had made it through all of spring training without any positive COVID-19 tests. We then get this news the day before, the day before opening day. Like you're right there. You're right at the goal line. All you have to do is break the plane for the touchdown. And that's the moment that you find out about a positive COVID-19 test. Like you cannot make this stuff up. Major League Baseball has continued to do a great job with COVID-19. The whole COVID-19 issue has barely come up over the last month and a half during spring training because it's become almost like a non-issue. Like you're just not hearing a lot about it. Oh, this guy tested positive. That guy tested positive. There's been like none of that over the last month and a half. And I remember it was not that long ago that a lot of people said, you know, baseball should not even be starting its season on time 
Baseball should be waiting a month so that more people can get vaccinated. And it wasn't an unreasonable take, but it became a total non-issue over the last month and a half. And then we get this news yesterday with the Nationals. Again, like a piano falling out of the sky. This came out of nowhere that someone had tested positive. And one more time, it's not just about one person having tested positive. It's that because you flew back on that shorter flight with that person before you knew he tested positive, you have six people you're going to be without for opening night on Thursday night. The other killer aspect, though, of all of this is it is, as the great Yogi Berra would say, deja vu all over again. The Nationals went through something so similar prior to the start of last season, right? Juan Soto missed the first seven games of that 60-game 2020 season. The Nationals, last July 23rd, announced their season-opening 30-man roster hours before the team's season-opening game, what ended up being a 4-1 rain-shortened loss to the New York Yankees at Nationals Park. Not on that season opening roster was Soto, who it turned out had tested positive for COVID-19. And I emphasize that word tested because it appears, right, that Soto never had COVID-19. Juan Soto, per MLB insider John Heyman of MLB Network, and understand this with John Heyman, he is tight with Soto's agent, Scott Boris. So over the years, whenever Heyman has put out stuff about the Nationals, I've paid particular attention because Heyman is very tight with Boris. And of course, the Nats have had so many Scott Boris clients over the years. But John Heyman put out a tweet last July 30th saying that Soto had had 10 consecutive negative tests off that positive test. Soto, in fact, got cleared by the D.C. government to return to the Nationals eventually on August 1st. And Soto in a press conference, and always remember this because Soto did this press conference on his own and in English, okay? Obviously, Juan Soto's from the Dominican Republic, uh, and I give him a lot of credit for this because Juan Soto's one of these guys who has made it a point to learn English, become better at the language. Alex Ovechkin did something very similar, and I think that's a very smart way to approach things. But Soto, on his own and in English, did a presser saying he believed he never had COVID-19. And while we'll never know with complete certainty, it sure looks like he never had COVID-19. So a fake, phony, false positive Cost Juan Soto the first seven games of the 60-game season. Understand, in a 60-game season, each game is worth 2.7 games as compared to a 162-game season. So Soto missing those first seven games in 2020, that was the equivalent of him missing the Nats' first 19 games in a 162-game season. But bottom line is, you just went through this less than a year ago. You started last season with a COVID-19 mess, and now you're beginning this season with a COVID-19 mess. You can't make this stuff up. So we'll see, man, like who tested positive. We don't know who you're going to be without for opening night and presumably uh, most of, if not the entirety of this season opening series against the Mets. What does shape up to be, right, a pretty big series given the expectations uh, for the Mets in 2021. We do not know. One more thing, though, on all of this, and this is something to keep in mind. And interestingly, this also came out on Wednesday that at least 85% of what's known as the traveling party of the St. Louis Cardinals had been vaccinated for COVID-19. This is significant because major league teams were told on Monday that MLB and the MLB Players Association, who, by the way, never agree on anything, had agreed to relax certain health and safety protocols for this season for fully vaccinated tier one individuals and for clubs on which 85% of tier one individuals had been fully vaccinated. 
That phrase has been used a lot across sports during the pandemic. Tier one individuals. For baseball, tier one individuals include players, coaches, trainers, some front office members, other staffers. Basically, your key people, the people who are with the team all the time, those people are your tier one individuals. MLB is very much encouraging players to receive one of these approved COVID-19 vaccines when eligible. Obviously, MLB cannot make players get vaccinated, but MLB is very much putting out incentives for players and people in general associated with teams to get vaccinated. So keep that in mind here, all right? Whatever you think about whether people should be vaccinated or not, and personally, I think they should. I think this anti-vax sentiment that's out there is ridiculous and not based at all in fact, but whatever, like you can't make people do things. But there is a competitive advantage to players being vaccinated here in that you can relax some of the protocols and you certainly can avoid a mess like the Nationals currently have where they're set to be, again, without five players and a staffer for opening night and probably beyond. This is what teams have got to be thinking of here. Of Okay, you know, I mean, just to put it bluntly and coldly, it's not even necessarily about our players' health. It's about us winning games in 2021. Get your shots so that we can have you for 2021. So it's going to be very interesting to see how quickly you get more teams that reach that 85% threshold of tier one personnel having been fully vaccinated. Cardinals are believed to be the first. Are there about to be a whole lot more to come? I mean, if I'm the Nationals, I'm getting myself, I'm getting my hands on every Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna, whatever vaccine I got to get. And I'm just shoving them all into all my players' arms because I'm not going through this anymore. Juan Soto last season, five players to begin this season. Enough is enough. I mean, we are all so sick of this pandemic, which should have never happened, right? We're all fed up. We're all tired of it. You know, we need to get out of this. We are getting out of this, but of course it can't come quickly enough. And here you are with the Nationals. And again, the day before opening day of having gone through all of spring training without anyone testing positive, you find out that on the morning of your final exhibition game, somebody tested positive and it doesn't come to your knowledge until you've chartered a flight back up to the D.C. area. And so now it's not just about that person. It's about these other five people who you're about to be without. My over-under predictions for the Nationals and Orioles. Also, my conversations with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com, my co-host on the Nats Chat podcast, and Orioles insider Dan Conley of The Athletic Baltimore, all still to come on this special Nationals and Orioles preview episode of the Al Galdi podcast. But before we get to those things, we have to deal with another major Nationals item that was out there on Wednesday. And I tweeted about this, and I've gotten a lot of feedback to this. You can always follow me on Twitter, at Al Galdi. So, Masson, all the way back on January 25th, announced that the network would be launching an app. An app to stream all Nats and Orioles games for the 2021 season. And this was big news, and this was actually, for the most part, very good news. Because for years, this has been one of the biggest complaints about being a baseball fan in the D.C. area. That you did not have an in-market streaming option to watch the Nats and the O's. Or at least not a readily available option for in-market streaming of Nationals and Orioles games. And the Masson app was to be for fans in Masson's seven-state broadcast territory. 
The Masson app was to stream the network's entire programming lineup. The Masson app was to be available without any additional cost to authenticated subscribers who already had Masson in their channel lineup from participating cable and satellite providers. So, okay, Masson puts this out there on January 25th. Now, this was also at the time of all of these drastic Masson cutbacks coming out. Bunch of people who you've gotten used to watching over the years were out at Masson. You had the news that Masson was cutting Nats extra pregame and postgame to just 15 minutes each. Such a deal this was that the Nationals actually put out a scathing statement ripping Masson. How many times ever has that happened? A team putting out a statement ripping that team's television channel. Like, what a messed up dynamic this has been. This whole Masson dispute, Nationals versus Orioles, Learners versus Angelos family, and that the team put out a statement crushing the network back on January 25th to me remains an all-timer. But anyway, there was this news that Masson was coming out with an app. Well, here we are. As I tape this very early on Thursday morning, April 1st, my three-year-old son, by the way, said to me yesterday, Dada, why you do your show in the night? It's a good question. I'm not exactly sure about that. But anyway, as I tape this very early in the morning of Thursday, April 1st, what is baseball's opening day? <laughs> the Masson app is still not out. This was announced on January 25th, and the Masson app <laughs> is still not out. Now, maybe that's about to change, okay? Maybe by the time you download this podcast or listening to this podcast, the Masson app is out there. But let me ask you this. Even if the Masson app does come out later on, on this Thursday, in time for this opening day, don't you think it might have been wise to get it out there a little sooner? Don't you think to sort of guard against the pitfalls of an app, right? Because all the time, apps are wonky. Apps have problems. Apps have things that need to be fixed. Wouldn't it have made a little more sense to maybe get it out there, I don't know, a week ago, two weeks ago, work out the kinks? You could actually have in-market streaming of exhibition games, you know, so maybe Nationals and Orioles fans could more easily watch their teams in exhibition play, okay? Um, maybe you could have made kind of a big thing out of the launch of this app and, you know, dressed it up a little bit and made it kind of a kickoff to the upcoming baseball season and, you know, presented it in a way that gets people excited about what you're doing and what your network is about and what the Nationals and Orioles are about to do in 2021. Like, none of that. The app has been completely buried. The app doesn't get talked about. The app, as I speak here on this Thursday morning, has yet to be announced. It's another total embarrassment for Masson. This is total amateur hour. What goes on with this network. And understand, when I say all this, this is not an indictment of the people who work at Masson. There are many fine people who work at Masson, many talented people who work at Masson. This is an indictment 100% of the way that Masson is run. Masson is run on the cheap. Masson has been run on the cheap for years. When you talk about the Masson problem in the DMV, The problem really should be categorized as problems because there is the Masson dispute and the Nationals being owed tens of millions of dollars from the Orioles for being lowballed for years in terms of what the learners slash Nationals have been paid by Masson. But there's also, to me, an even bigger problem because at the end of the day, there is no guarantee that this additional money 
from the Orioles slash Madison to the learners is going to ever result in the learners actually spending that money on payroll. And the learners are the richest ownership group in Major League Baseball. This never gets talked about. The richest ownership group in baseball is not that of the Yankees or the Dodgers or the Red Sox. It is that of the Nationals. The learners in September 2020 in Forbes rankings of America's richest sports team owners ranked number one in MLB with an estimated net worth of $4.8 billion. So I'm not really sure how much the extra money from Masson is going to ultimately change things with the Nats, who, by the way, per Cots baseball contracts, have ranked in the top 10 in the majors in year-end 40-man payroll in each of the last eight years, 2013 through 2020. So to the learner's credit, they spend on players. So I'm not really sure how much the influx of cash from Masson, if it ever comes, is going to truly change things for the learners. Now, they're owed the money they're owed, so I'm not saying they shouldn't get what they deserve. But like, I think the mass and dispute in that way can be overrated. What is not overrated, what in fact is underrated, but it's something I've talked about for years is the way that Masson is run and what that has meant for baseball fandom in the DMV. Masson is run on the cheap. Everybody knows this. And so what ends up happening is your experience as a baseball fan in the Washington DC area, whether you're a Nats fan or an Orioles fan is lessened drastically. And we'll never know how much this has hurt fandom of baseball in the DMV area. How much this has lessened fandom of baseball in the DMV area. Masson is cheap. It's unappealing. And there's not a lot to sink your teeth into if you're a baseball fan. Masson has some of the worst production values that you'll ever see from a cable television network. The studio sets are dark and drabby. The lack of graphics and highlights on shows is criminal. The Nationals and Orioles telecast for years have used the same music going to break this generic, totally nondescript instrumental song. And the song has been used like every year for both teams. I mean, you can't even find two generic, totally nondescript instrumental songs. You have to only have one and use it for both teams. And it's been used every year over and over and over and over. And over again, here it is, in case you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, does that sound familiar? We have heard that song for so long. For both teams. And it's like, geez, you can't even find another song along those lines just so you can differentiate between the Nationals and the Orioles. And then there's this. And this to me is probably the biggest problem under the umbrella of Masson being run on the cheap. The lack of ancillary shows. Masson basically runs Nationals and Orioles games. You know, whatever versions of pre and post game shows we're going to be getting in 2021. And that's it. The rest of the program on Masson is, you know, college basketball and college football games, ESPN News, and infomercials. There used to be a weekday talk show called the Mid-Atlantic Sports Report. That's gone. There used to be two Saturday morning talk shows, Nats Talk and Wall-to-Wall Baseball. Those are gone. And that's basically it. Those programs have gone bye-bye. And so any notion of ancillary programming on Masson for the Nationals and Orioles, uh, that's out the window. And that matters. That hurts the building up of fan bases. That makes people not pay as much attention 
to the Nationals and the Orioles. For comparison's sake, Yes Network, Yankee Entertainment and Sports Network, owned by the New York Yankees, carries Yankees in Brooklyn Nets games, has all kinds of ancillary programming just for the Yankees, okay? The, the Yankees on Yes, are you aware of this, have essentially a pregame show for the pregame show. Uh, n- never mind, you know, Masson and this talk of only having 15-minute pre- and post-game shows for this year. We'll see if the, if the uh, if, uh, Masson actually ends up doing that. But the Yankees on Yes have what's called Yankees pregame show. The Yankees on Yes also have a show called Yankees batting practice today. Yankees batting practice today is a televising of batting practice for the Yankees. It's a pregame show for the pregame show. Like, that's how you build a fandom, okay? That's how you cater to fans of your team and you grow your fan base, right? And I know you say, well, Goldie, it's New York. It's the Yankees. Yeah, so you can't have something approximating that? Like, I'm not saying you should have uh, Nationals batting practice today on Masson. Like, that's a big ask. I understand that. But it's the idea of the Yankees on Yes have a total commitment to growing the brand. The Nationals on Masson get zero commitment to growing that brand. And you also have that with the Orioles. Like Masson may be owned by the O's. It's not like the Orioles are benefiting from this Masson setup either. But it just cracked me up thinking about this on Wednesday. You have on, yes, Yankees batting practice today, a pregame show for the pregame show. You have here in the DMV, Masson being unable to even get an app good to go for opening day. Like the, 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 the difference, the discrepancy between the two extremes was never clearer than it was on Wednesday. An app. I mean, it's 2021, okay? An app is not some all-time cutting-edge revolutionary concept, okay? There are millions of apps in this world. You can't churn one out of having announced it on January 25th in time for opening day. And like I said, even if it comes out later today, that's not the point because you've already blown it because you know there are going to be kinks. You know there are going to be problems, okay? If you really want to do this right, you announce it a month ago, you put it out a month ago, or maybe at the very least like a few weeks ago, you make a big deal out of it. You know, you put your talent on various shows and podcasts around the area to promote the app, and you work out the kinks, and you give your viewers a chance to become familiar with the app, okay? You do it properly. You launch it properly. You don't haphazard it, and you don't rush it out, and my God, <laughs> you don't put it out after the start of the season, which is today. It's unbelievable. The mess in mess is even messier. That's enough. That's enough. We got it. We got it. It is prediction time. All right. So when it comes to the Nationals in the 2021 season, I'm going to bottom line it for you here. I'm worried about the Nets. I got real concerns about the Nats. The Nats, to me, are coming off like a team that has been good, but now is less good, doesn't necessarily recognize that it's less good, and may be about to fall off. You know, the the Philadelphia Phillies were in this spot in like 2012, 2013. The San Francisco Giants got into this spot like 2015, 2016. And I just fear that the Nats may well be in that spot of, you've had this sustained period of making postseasons, you're an older team. You haven't done exactly what you wanted to do in the most recent season. And now things are kind of teetering and they may well be about to be falling apart. Now, I hope that's not the case. I don't think that it's a definite that that is the case, but I want to point out some things. The Nationals in 2020 tied for the third worst record in the National League at 26 and 34, tied with the New York Mets 
and Colorado Rockies. And one of the things that's troubled me over the last few months is this writing off of what the Nats did in 2020 as, well, it was 2020, and yeah, it's a shortened season, and yeah, COVID-19, yeah, it doesn't matter, I, it doesn't count. Uh, the 2020 season was still a baseball season. It wasn't some ridiculous over-the-top season in which we wound up with, you know, Tigers-Rockies in the World Series or Orioles-Pirates in the World Series. It was Los Angeles Dodgers-Tampa Bay Rays, two very representative teams of the season, and the consensus best team in the sport won the World Series in the Dodgers. Now, yes, it was a 60-game regular season. I'm not saying that everything that happened in 2020 is absolute gospel, but, you know, this total dismissal of it, of, eh, it doesn't matter. Like, uh, no, it does kind of matter what happened. And the Nationals were a really bad ball club in 2020. The Nats in 2020, 27th out of 30 major league teams in starting pitching ERA at 538. 23rd out of 30 major league teams in relief pitching ERA at 468. Dead last in the majors in defensive runs saved at minus 45. And the offensive numbers were basically middle of the pack. But as we all know, after Juan Soto and Trey Turner, there was a drastic drop-off in terms of offensive production from Nationals position players. So starting pitching, relief pitching, defense, offense, all four things were significant issues for the Nationals in 2020. The Nats are an older team. You think about them going into 2021, they're counting on 430-somethings in the rotation. Now, that doesn't mean that all four of those 30-somethings are Drek, like quite the opposite. Uh, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, Patrick Corbin, I still think have enough left in the tank to where they can all be very good in 2021. John Lester, of having undergone the parathyroid surgery, maybe has fixed something that's led to some fatigue in recent years, and maybe he's a better version of his older self this coming season. But the Nats are an older team in the rotation. The Nats are counting on multiple 30-somethings when it comes to the everyday position spots, you know, catcher, second base, third base, a part-timer at first base, and Ryan Zimmerman. Uh, the Nats in the offseason, I think, made good moves, uh, certainly sensible moves, but the Nats, like, didn't go for it in the offseason. You know, the Nats did a lot of these, uh, shall we say, uh, Bruce Allen-type acquisitions. You know, the Nats signed John Lester to a one-year $5 million contract. A, a one-year $5 million deal, by the way, with $2 million paid in 2021 and $3 million paid in 2023 via a deferred signing bonus. That cracked me up when I saw that. I mean, it's one thing for the learners to do deferred money in a big money contract like the Scherzer contract. Understand, the learners did deferred money in the John Lester one-year $5 million deal. I mean, that just is, that is so funny to me that the learners have got a learner and they've got to defer money even in a one-year $5 million contract. But you signed Lester, you signed Brad Hand, and I very much like that signing, a one-year $10.5 million deal. Uh, You know, you signed Kyle Schwarber, one-year contract. You traded for Josh Bell from the Pittsburgh Pirates, and it's not like you gave up a ton to get him. You gave up these two pitching prospects, including Will Crow. And you signed a new backup catcher and Alex Avila. These were all sensible moves. I I don't really have a problem with any uh, of the moves. But you certainly didn't reel in the big fish. And in fact, every indication is you didn't even go after any of the big fish. It was this past December 15th that Mike Rizzo in a Zoom press conference said, and I quote, with conversations with ownership, we feel that we have the budget to get a championship caliber club, end quote. Uh, well, we'll see if the Nats are championship caliber. I'm not sure of that. I'm not feeling it when it comes to that. 
And I don't know if it's that Rizzo wanted to do more and wasn't given the budget to do so, or if he just decided he wasn't going to do more. But the Nationals were not in on, say, George Springer, who ended up signing with the Toronto Blue Jays for a relatively modest six-year $150 million deal. In all seasons past, Springer's getting 200 plus million. He only got 150 million from the Blue Jays. The Nats did not sign Michael Brantley, whom the Houston Astros re-signed to a mere two-year contract for $32 million. The Nats did not sign JT Realmuto, who the Nats supposedly for years had lusted after. He ended up re-signing with the Philadelphia Phillies, five-year contract, $115.5 million dollars. You know, it would have been a big ask, but the Nats did not sign Trevor Bauer. He signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers, got a three-year deal. That is so interesting to me. And actually, in a lot of ways, I think could be the construct for big money contracts moving forward. It's an ultra short-term deal for mega money. $102 million over three years, but opt-out clauses after the 2021 and 2022 seasons. The contract is complicated, but it sets up to be either a one-year $40 million deal or a two-year $85 million deal. So yeah, you pay a ton, but you only pay the guy for one or two years. And then if it's not working out, he's out of here. And it's not like you're stuck in some long-term commitment. I thought that was a very smart contract the Dodgers signed Bauer to. It's actually very similar to what the Dodgers, as you may recall, offered Bryce Harper during his free agency in that 2018-2019 offseason. Bob Nightingale, USA Today MLB insider, he reported February 2019 that Harper's final two offers from the other two finalists, the Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants, included the following from the Dodgers. Three years, $135 million, or four years, $168 million. So much shorter terms than what Harper got from the Philadelphia Phillies, but, but big money over those short terms that Harper would have had uh, with the Dodgers, either three for 135 or four for 168. I I think that's actually so smart in a lot of ways for how free agency should be done moving forward. But anyway, the Nats didn't sign any of these people. And you know what? A lot of big money contracts in baseball don't work out. So maybe it's for the best that the Nats didn't sign any of these people. But I know this, in Major League Baseball especially, you're either in or you're out, okay? You're either trying to win 100 or you're trying to lose 100, okay? I mean, that's basically the way the sport is these days. You're either in, like the Dodgers and Yankees are in, or you're out, like the Orioles and Pittsburgh Pirates are out. And the Nationals, to me, they kind of reek of a team that's teetering, that's kind of straddling the fence of, well, we're kind of in because we have all these older players and we still have designs on making the postseason, but we're not entirely in. Because our offseason consisted of signing the John Lesters and Kyle Schwarbers and Alex Avila's and trading for Josh Bell, uh, but not really doing anything big, you know, beyond, if you want to say, the Brad Hand deal, one year, $10.5 million, you know, to whatever extent that's big in today's day and age in Major League Baseball. So look, I look at the Nats and I say to myself this, the Nats are too talented to be awful, right? Juan Soto, Trey Turner, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, there remains a lot of talent on this team. So the Nats are too talented to just completely crater this year. But to me, the Nats have too many questions to be great, especially competing in what seems to be, and I say seems because who knows how the season plays out, but seems to be the deepest division in Major League Baseball in the National League East. This to me feels like a team that finishes with a win total in the low to mid 80s. So you're kind of sort of in it, but you're not really truly ultimately in it. I think the Nats go 83 and 79. Kind of the consensus over under win total you're seeing for the Nats is 84 and a half. Uh, I would take the under 
on that. I think this is going to be kind of a mediocre season for the Nats. And I actually think there are going to be a lot of questions at the end of the season of, okay, which direction are we going in here? And it's been a few years now since the Nats spent big money on a free agent in the offseason. I very much could see the Nats getting back to being player players in free agency this coming offseason. And keep this in the back of your mind, because I think this could be a big topic this summer on this podcast. The Nats, if they're a middling team this year, with Max Scherzer in his contract season, if he's having a very good season, will the Nats have the chops to trade away Max Scherzer to try to replenish a farm system that's in desperate need of replenishing? You know, the Nats farm system is not in great shape right now. The Nats over the last ranking of the top 100 prospects in baseball per MLB pipeline had one of the top 100 prospects in Major League Baseball. That's it. And that prospect was the number 99 prospect in the sport, the pitcher, Cade Cavalli. So top 100 prospects, you only have one, and it's number 99. The Nats need to beef up their farm system They did not have the chops to trade away Bryce Harper in his contract season of 2018. And when I say they, and let me be more specific, the learners did not have the chops to trade away Bryce that season. Mike Rizzo sure did. The Ninja sure did. He had a deal on the table with the Houston Astros. Rizzo had it all set. We're going to trade away Brycey. We're going to get back some prospects from the Astros. And the deal got nixed by the learners because they didn't want to trade away Bryce. And then, of course, they ended up letting him leave via free agency that offseason. But I wonder if the Nats are kind of, you know, yeah, they're sort of good, but not really good. And say Atlanta's running away with the NL East in 2021. Will the Nats do what they should do, which is trade away Max Scherzer at the deadline to help build the farm system back up? And, you know, I say that not in any way as a knock on Max. It's actually an endorsement of Max. He has trade value. And always understand, you can trade him away and then you can sign him right back in free agency. You know, and if Max is the Nationals loyalist that he certainly seems to be, he would sign back with the Nationals in free agency. This does happen. The Orioles years ago traded away Mike Bordick and then signed him that offseason. The Yankees traded away Aroldis Chapman and then signed him back that offseason. This does happen. And I wonder if something like that maybe could happen with Max Scherzer. I hope the Nats have a great season. They could. I'm not, not here to totally write them off, but I think you're being a little naive if you don't acknowledge the many questions and the many potential pitfalls for the Nats in 2021. A season, by the way, in which I think depth could matter more than ever before with pitchers having thrown so few innings in 2020. And that's another thing of concern with the Nats. They're not a very deep team. All right, with the Orioles, it's real simple. It's not about wins and losses. It's about the young potential building blocks doing well. It's about rehabbing some of these veterans and potentially flipping them for more potential young building blocks. The consensus over under you find with the Orioles in terms of the win total, 64 and a half. I will take the under. Um, you know, is it possible the Orioles avoid a 100-loss season? Sure it is. But know this with the O's. It's not just that they've been bad over the last few years. It's that they've been incredibly bad. Like, the Orioles, yes, last season they got off to that cute, fun start, 12-8, and eight, but they ended up going 13-27 and 27 the rest of the way. But you look at the O's over the last two 162-game seasons. 2018, the Orioles went 47-115. and 115. Not just a 100-loss season, a 115-loss season. And in 2019, the O's went 54 and 108. You've lost 223 games 
over the last two 162-game seasons. Now, are the O's in better shape today than they were over those two years? Yes. And like I've said, I actually like the direction the Orioles are going in here with Mike Elias, the all-in on analytics approach. But the O's aren't ready to win yet. They did next to nothing this offseason in terms of bringing in people of true consequence. You know, maybe a catch lightning in a bottle with a Matt Harvey or a Michael Franco. But still, this is not a team that is trying to win in any meaningful way. So yeah, I think the O's are going to lose at or near 100 again. I'll take the under on the 64 and a half. And now we arrive at our two special guests. And the first of our two special guests on this opening day 2021 is a man with whom I have talked Nats for years. He and I host the Nats Chat Podcast, for which there will be a new episode the morning after every Nats game this season. He is Nats Insider, Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. Mark, we talk all the time these days, but it's nice to talk to you on this podcast. How are you? I'm I'm great, Al. This is the crossover edition, right? This is like when they take CSI and CSI Miami and they bring the cast together to solve one crime, right? Is that what we're doing here? This is like Costanza. Worlds are colliding with this conversation. Yes. So yeah, that's chat. Uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. We've had Max Scherzer on the podcast. We've had Ryan Zimmerman on the podcast. So if you're a Nats fan, you definitely want to subscribe. Uh, the Nats fan has been underserved for way too long. Our goal is to change that. Now, you know, Mark, you've done audio work for years, but having now plunged fully into the depths of sports talk, you know, the, the, the dark universe that is sports talk, how do you feel so far? Not as dirty as I thought I would, you know? <laughs> I know enough of you guys and know what goes on behind the scenes. And I, you know, I've always been a little bit leery or skeptical of, of entering this world. But no, it's been fantastic. You, of course, are a perfect host for this. We've had a lot of fun. I think the fact that we've known each other for years and talked about the Nats for years has helped. And, um, you know, it's a changing world. We've both found that out at various times in our careers. you got to be ready to adapt. And this is, I think, the wave of the future. And this is giving us a chance to reach a very specific audience that we know cares about what we're talking about. And I think it's fantastic. It's been a big hit so far. I know your podcast has been a big hit. Congrats on that. I hope we have a lot of success as we move forward. No doubt. Well, once you check in, though, to the world of sports talk, you can never leave. That's the way it goes. Once you're in, you're stuck. So I just hope you're aware of that. I'm ready. I'm prepared for it. Okay, good. I can talk baseball forever. That won't be (laughs) Good, very good. I know you can, and you do it really well, and obviously been writing about it so well for years. So I thought it would be good to have you on this podcast, not just to plug Nats Chat, but also cover some ground that we haven't yet covered on Nats Chat. And I'd like to get your take on this. So this season marks the first time since the Nats came here that we have true managerial stability, right? The Nats in late September announcing that multi-year extension for Davey Martinez. We know it's a three-year deal. We saw him this past offseason really start to put his stamp on the coaching staff, right, by hiring Jim Hickey as pitching coach. They worked together with the Cubs. Do you think Davey having this contract, having this security, will mean anything in terms of wins this coming season? Like, in other words, does Davey maybe take some more risks? Does he maybe do things more his way because he's almost certainly not getting fired anytime soon? Or or do you think Davey's contractual stability really doesn't have much to do with wins and losses in 2021? That's a good question. I hadn't thought of it in those terms. I'm not sure from a win-loss standpoint it makes a big difference. But I can tell you for sure it did have an effect on what the team is and what the coaching staff is going into this season. After signing his extension in September, he pretty much made it known that he wanted to have more say over his staff. And so Paul Menhart, a pitching coach who won a World Series for them, 
was let go, and he brought in Jim Hickey, a guy he's worked with in Tampa uh, and knew from Chicago as well. Um, he, he's got kind of like his guys there now. Randy Knorr, who is a Nationals lifer, but as someone that Davey got to know really well as a AAA manager the last few years, felt a connection with him, wanted him to be on the staff as well. And then I don't think it's a complete coincidence when you look at some of the players they, they added. Kyle Schwarber, former Cub. Starlin Castro, I know that was a year ago, but former Cub. A lot of these are guys that Davey knows and trusts and feels like he, uh, you know, has a better perspective on than maybe somebody who was already here or somebody who might, uh, they might have otherwise gone for. So I think he had more control and felt more empowered to try to make uh, his voice known and, and when it came to roster decisions and certainly coaches' decisions. Now, does that translate into wins and losses on a daily basis? Maybe not, but you know, the roster is as much his, I think, as it is Mike Rizzo's, which probably wasn't the case the last few years. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's safe to say, right? Davey has more power to whatever extent he has power than any Nats manager has had since the team came here. Am I right in saying that? Probably so. I mean, you know, Dusty Baker had a say in a lot of things. Davey Johnson had say in a lot of things, but they also knew they were on short-term deals. I mean, none of these guys lasted more than two and a half years. So Davey is the first one, Davey Martinez, is the first one to reach a fourth season as the manager of the team. He actually would have managed the most games at some point last year if it had been a normal season. He was all set to to pass. You, you want to take a guess who's managed the most games in Nationals history? Is it Manny Acta? It is. It is Manny Acta, barely. Barely, with about two and a half years, barely over uh, Davey Johnson, Jim Riggleman, and then a bunch of guys who managed like exactly two years. So uh, it's going to happen, I think, in May now, God willing, and uh, Davey will be number one on the list. But So, yeah, I mean, there is a difference there, of course. And uh, now that he also knows that he's not on the hot seat this year, we're not going to be talking about his contract or are they going to pick him up or are they going to get rid of him. It's not going to be an issue for another couple of years. So it it – makes a difference, and I'll be interested to see, does he maybe stick his chest out a little bit more? Maybe it does mean that there's a move that he would make that he wouldn't have in the past. But certainly from a uh, construction standpoint, I, I feel like he did have much more say than he did in the past, and maybe more than any other manager has. In terms of a successful season for the Nats in 2021, obviously we all have what we think is going to happen, but when it comes to Mike Rizzo and what he's truly thinking, you know, given the roster given the state of things. How do you think Rizzo, if he's being honest, would define a successful 2021 for the Nats? Like, we, we know they're going to say win a championship, win a World Series, but internally, what do you think the Nats consider to be a successful 2021? I think probably making the playoffs. I think less than that is a disappointment. Getting there, as they've seen over the years, you, you do your best to position yourself to now have a chance in the playoffs. And then what happens at that point is a combination of talent and luck and right timing and injuries and all those other things. And I think they've learned that over the years. He always says his goal is to try to build a 90-win team that if things go really well, maybe you win 95. If they don't go well, you win 85, and that knocks you out of contention. Is this a 90-win team? I think they're fairly close. But as we've talked about on our podcast, there's a lot of uncertainties, a lot of variables that could go either way. And to me, I think he always views it as – Let's put together the best team that we can without going overboard to start a season. And then let's reevaluate it in the summer and see what else do we need. 
maybe we're we think we could be that 93 to 95 win team, but we need to go get another bullpen arm or another bat. Let's go do that. Or you get to that point, eh, you know what, it's not happening. Maybe we do need to take a step back here. They haven't been in that position a lot. But I think he is optimistic. He wouldn't try to claim this is the best team they've had or that there are no flaws on this team because he, that's not true and he knows it. But he believes in his pitching staff, his rotations for certain. And he believes in the big bats in his lineup. It's going to be, I think, a question of depth and bullpen and a lot of little things, as Davey likes to talk about, that determine whether this team – gets over that 90-win hump or whether it falls behind it. Talking with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. He and I hosting the Nats Chat podcast, post-game Nats pods for every Nationals game as the regular season is upon us here. So like you said, there are so many question marks for the Nats this coming season. Which question do you think is the most significant question? Like of all the players who could kind of go either way or of all the factors that could maybe go either way, is there one thing that stands out to you above the rest in terms of being most key in determining the Nationals' fate in 2021? I'm going to say that it's the, the lineup and particularly the, the new guys. I guess Bell and Schwarber for the most part. I don't know if we have to count Ryan Zimmerman as a newcomer or not. He sort of is this year. I, I believe in the in the rotation. Maybe it's not, you know, maybe they're not all elite, but as a group I think it's still going to be very good. The bullpen, yes, there are questions, but I still feel like Brad Hand is a known commodity. I think Daniel Hudson's going to be okay. Tanner Rainey looks like he's legitimate. And they may not have the five deep bullpen we thought they would at the start of spring training, but I think they're going to be all right there. And and as we've seen, you can still win even with a bad bullpen. This team has shown that. But really last year, outside of Trey Turner and Juan Soto, they just didn't get production, and they knew they needed to do something about it. And the guys they got have the potential to make a big difference. And what we saw this spring from Josh Bell and Schwarber to a lesser extent, if that's who they really are, this could be a very good lineup. If it's not, if they fall back to their 2020 forms with their previous teams, if Zim can't stay healthy, if Victor Robles doesn't work out as a leadoff hitter, they could be in trouble because now they have to win games three to two instead of five to four, six to five. And that's where it is going to put pressure on the bullpen and the defense and other things that, that could be a problem area. So if they have a good rotation and they have a consistently good lineup, I think that masks everything else and they'll be all right. So I think I would say it's those the, the lineup depth behind the two big guys uh, is, to me, the biggest variable that they need to go right to win. It's hard to win if those guys aren't good. It's interesting with the Nats because they obviously have some really good younger players, right? Like Juan Soto obviously stands out, but Victor Robles would fall into that category. But they also have a lot of older guys, right? They were the oldest team in baseball when they won the World Series in 2019. A lot of those guys still with the team are now two years older. You know, you're counting on 430-somethings in the rotation. You know, Ryan Zimmerman, Jan Gomes, like there are definite older players in the lineup. Do you consider the Nats' age to be an issue? Obviously, baseball is very different now because in this PED testing era, guys aren't aging like they were, you know, in 2004. Uh, To what extent, if at all, is the Nationals' age a concern to you? I mean, I think they would say, hey, look what we did two years ago, and it was all the veterans that that delivered for us. So, yeah, that's great, but all those guys are now two years older, and a lot of them are still with the team. And one of these days, you know, I would keep saying, one of these years, Max Scherzer isn't going to be Max Scherzer anymore. Zim is going to run out of steam eventually. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a little bit of a concern. I think, like you said, what's a little bit fascinating about this team is that you have a couple of big, bright, young stars, and you've got a bunch of these age, like, 33 and over guys. There's not a lot in that, you know, 27 to 32 range. 
Trey Turner might be the only really big name guy they have in that range. And, and ideally, that's who you, you should have the bulk of your team. Um, so yeah, a little bit of concern, probably more, more so from the injury standpoint. Do they have the depth to overcome uh, if, if multiple of those older guys go down? Um, you know, I think Strasburg, if he's healthy, he's going to be good. We know that. I think Scherzer, if he's not Cy Young level, is still going to be pretty good. Corbin, I want to believe that last year was a bit of an anomaly and that he will be more like we saw in 19. John Lester is up there in age, but as we've been talking about, they don't need him to be an ace anymore. Um, the lineup, you know, I guess Josh Bell fits in that category. Schwarber is sort of that mid-range, not as old guy. So I, I think it's probably okay, but there is always a risk when you're going to build a team that's specifically built around veterans like they have. Now, they see that as an advantage. And they think they're doing something that most teams don't and that there is actual advantage to doing that, a little market inefficiency there. Let's see. It's certainly from the clubhouse perspective and leadership and all that, and maybe it makes a difference. But you got to be able to stay on the field, number one, and be productive when you're out there, and that would be the question. So you mentioned Max Scherzer. It is the final season of that 70-year, $210 million deal. The extent to which that has worked out, I don't think could ever be overstated. It's funny. We've spent so much time talking about, you know, Juan Soto and a potential extension for him and Trey Turner and a potential extension for him. And you really haven't had that much Max contract conversation. Do you think it's likely or at least, you know, decently possible he gets extended in season? Do you think this is the kind of thing that you wait until the season is done and you see where he's at? What, what do you think the approach is going to be with the Nats when it comes to Scherzer contractually? I would guess it's more likely to happen after the season because I don't think Max is the type who's really going to want it to, to be an issue in season. He's going, to, he's going to be focused on other stuff. I suppose if he's really good and looks like, you know, the old Cy Young Max that maybe he and Scott Boris would try to strike while the iron's hot and maybe see if they can get it done you know, and take advantage of that. But I don't think Max is all that concerned with it. Um, and if you're the Nationals, I, I tend to believe he's going to be back for more. Uh, as long as this isn't a, a disaster of a year for him, uh, as long as he stays healthy, as long as he still seems productive, I think they're going to find a way. I I don't think he's the type that's going to go chase a, a championship somewhere else to finish out his career because he's won the one here. He's comfortable here. You know, Some people made a big deal out of the fact that he and the family sold their house in Northern Virginia and moved to West Palm Beach and said, oh, this must mean they're not going to stay here for long. Well, what's in West Palm Beach? The National Spring Training Complex. Right. So unless he's going to the Astros, who also share the complex with them, I think that's actually a good sign that he'd want to stay with them for a little bit longer. So I, my guess is it wouldn't happen until after the year, but I, I have a feeling that barring something weird you know, transpiring over the course of the season, that he'll be back probably at a lower number than his salary is right now. Uh, and, and maybe they will start that transition of, you know, you're not the ace of the team anymore. Um, you know, you're a number two, number three, whatever it is. But I think the relationship there is good. And I don't see either side really wanting that to end anytime soon. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense. And even though he wasn't like at his best in 2020, he still was really good. Like he still was well above league average. Like there's still a lot of value in Max Scherzer. So we've covered the Nats at their various positions on the Nats Chat podcast. One position, though, we really haven't gotten into is catcher. And we know most teams like to do a timeshare of catcher because the position is so brutal. Nats have Jan Gomes and Alex Avila. How much of Avila do you expect to see? Because, I mean, Gomes actually had a pretty good 2020, and there are so few good hitting catchers now in baseball. Gomes has actually been pretty good the last few years. Avila is not a very good hitter, but Avila, interestingly, has caught so many 
of these Nats pitchers previously, right? Worked with Max with Detroit, worked with Patrick Corbin with Arizona, worked with John Lester with the Cubs. Uh, Avila, you know, you look at some of his numbers, like he's been very good throwing out runners trying to steal in recent years. So the guy's got something to him. What do you think Davey's thinking in terms of a, a time distribution, a catcher for this coming season? Yeah, nobody has caught more Max Scherzer starts in the big leagues than Alex Avila. Oh, wow. It's 107, some, something along those lines. Yeah. Now, obviously, those all came earlier in his career, but uh, he knows him well. And like you said, he has caught Corbin and Lester before, too. I think they they want Gomes to be the you know number one guy, whatever that means. But I don't think this is a, you know, six days a week situation at all. You know, if they have five starters, and I don't think they're going to designate who catches which guy necessarily, although I do know Gomes has caught Corbin the last two years, and they probably want to keep that alive. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it's three and two. Gomes catches three of the starters. Avila catches two of them. Again, not necessarily the same ones all the time, but split it up that way each turn through the rotation. But it's really going to depend on how are they doing. And if Gomes is hitting well and Avila isn't, then maybe he gets more starts if one of them is banged up. If, uh, you know, the caught stealing numbers are not good, and that's been a problem for them uh, in the past, if Avila is better at that, then maybe they say, hey, we need to kind of cut down on the running game, so we're going to give him a few more starts. I think it could be fluid and changing over the season. But in their minds, I would guess that their ideal scenario going in is that Gomes will catch, let's say, um, a hundred games in Avila, sixty, something along those lines. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, has Davey done the personal catcher thing that you said, Gomes Corbin? Is that really the only example of that the last few years? Yeah, so Suzuki would always catch uh, Anibal Sanchez, uh, and that so that worked out that way as well. Those are kind of the two, and then the others were depending on scheduling it. You know, the the problem with personal catchers is, let's say one one guy. Uh, pitches on Saturday night and you got your catcher working with him. And then the other guy is Sunday afternoon and you don't typically want your catcher to catch back to back like that. So they prefer not to do it. There may be guys that are just have a better connection. So they try to pair them up as much as they can. But I think Dave in particular wants to avoid that kind of true personal catcher situation. Yeah. So if the Nats do really well in 2021, then that's great. That's what we all want to see. If things don't go well, like, let's say what happened in 2020 happens in 2021, and the team just doesn't fire for whatever reason. It ends up being a really bad year in what seems to be a very competitive National League East. Do you see the Nats with Rizzo, with this current core of guys, ever actually doing a teardown and rebuilding or anything like that? Or do you think it would just be kind of let's reset, let's retool, kind of what they did after those disappointing 2013, 2015, and 2018 seasons? But like, any notion of like the Nats saying, all right, now we're out as opposed to being in, you know, we don't really view ourselves as contenders for the time being, that that's not going to happen with this current configuration of people. You know, I've noticed in the last month of doing podcasts with you, you like to go for the worst case scenario. I like to entertain the extremes. Why does it happen? Yeah. You, you, you kind of plan for contingencies in advance. Yes. Like, what if the worst case happens? Then, you know, how do we deal with it? <laughs> it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's good. Good planning strategy. It may, it may say something very um, disturbing about me. I'm not sure, but continue. <laughs> See, this is, if I stay and talk radio for too long, I'm going to turn into you. You probably Maybe will. I'm going to lose my optimism. Which is not good. Example. Yeah. No, no. So, uh, I would say that I think Mike Rizzo doesn't believe in the idea of a full scale rebuild, that he believes in retooling, whatever you want to call it, but that there's always a team that should be attempting to win and trying to sustain something. And, the, the 
I, I get what you're asking, and I could see it, but the thing that the Nats still have that not everyone in that position would is Juan Soto and Victor Robles and Trey Turner to start with in your opinion uh, lineup. Strasburg's locked up for another you know five years after this. Corbin's got several years left. Um, so I I don't think they'd ever get to a point that they felt like they had to dump those guys and start all over again. Maybe they would need to say, hey, okay, some of these guys are at the end of their rope. We need to move on from the veterans and, and, uh, you know, replace them. But the money they'd be saving by dropping those salaries, they could probably go afford to sign another prominent free agent, which they haven't done for a couple of years. So I don't think they're going to be in that position anytime soon. At least I, you can argue about whether they should, but I don't think that's the way they'll look at it. If they have to take a step back, it would be more of a medium step back with the idea of then, within a year after that, being ready to contend again. I don't think there'd be a full-scale blow-it-all-up, start-all-over-again. Um, from where they've been to to where they've gotten to now, I, I, just, I really don't think that's in their mindset. Yeah, and, and I, I mean, I think that makes sense because the total teardown doesn't always work. And so if you have good, young core players like the Nats have, you don't have to tear the whole thing down. And, you know, they didn't tear it down after some of these non-playoff years over the last decade, and that paid off. They ended up making the postseason after those down years. So, you know, who's to say that that wouldn't happen again? I guess my biggest concern, though, with the Nats is their farm system doesn't appear to be in very good shape. And, like, at some point, you do have to pay the piper for that kind of thing. Like, at some point, you do have to get back to getting prospects and, you know, having your next generation of core guys coming up through your system as opposed to constantly having to sign and trade for people. So that, that to me is kind of a bigger picture concern. But, you know, if you draft well and you make some shrewd trades over the next few years, you can replenish the farm system. Yeah, no, I think it's a good point, And you're right. The farm system is absolutely a major part of sustaining success over multiple generations, essentially, of players. And certainly from a pitching standpoint, they haven't been as good in that regard. Um, but let's see. Let's say optimistic. Let's say they're not in this position this year. They're going to win 90-plus games. They're going to be in the postseason again, and everything will be good, and we won't even be talking about that uh, this summer. It would be lovely to see that, and it all starts on Thursday night. Mark, thanks for coming on this podcast, man. I'll talk to you soon on the Nats Chat podcast. I look forward to that one, and uh, this is a little different, but it's all right. Nice little change of pace, but I'm ready to get back to our usual banter on Nats Chat. All right. Appreciate it, Mark. We move now to the Orioles, and I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Orioles insider Dan Conley of the Athletic Baltimore. has done a great job covering the O's for years. Dan, it's great to talk to you, man. How you doing? Good. How are you? Doing well. Appreciate it. Uh, very excited for the season. We know it's going to be another bad, rough season for the O's, but there's actually a lot of, I think, interesting things to get into with them. I'd like to actually begin with a bigger picture item, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but... When is it realistic to think the O's might be good again? Like, are we looking at three years from now, two years from now, maybe next season? We know it's not this season, but when might the fruits of the tank start to pay off? I would think in two years, not this season, not next season, but going into that third season, there needs to be real improvement. There needs to be players that you can look at and say, okay, this is where the nucleus is. And I think this year is going to be developing some of those guys who are maybe secondary tier prospects. Next year should be the development of, of some of the bigger type prospects. And then that third year, I would think anyway, should be the time when, you know, you, you look at this team and say, okay, we can see what they're doing. 
Yeah, okay, so you maybe just answer this next question, but in terms of the big four prospects who the Orioles have in the minors, the catcher, Adley Rutschman, the outfielder, Heston Kerstad, and the two pitchers, D.L. Hall, Grayson Rodriguez, we're looking at probably 2022 when maybe we start to see those guys? Yeah, or 2023. I mean, Kerstad's in a situation where, you know, he had, had a, a, heart, a heart enlargement situation. He has not played a professional game. He has not been in... Um, their, their alternate camps yet. He's supposed to join them for their alternate camp in uh, April, but he hasn't played it all yet. So we have no idea what, what he is besides, you know, what he did at Arkansas. So he's several years away, I would imagine. Plus they have a pretty good outfield right now that I think is going to hold guys like that back maybe a step or two. Uh, Rutschman, you know, it's the interesting thing. Everybody wants to know that the world's catchers right now have not been particularly good. They've been the catchers for the last two years. Fans are clamoring to get them up there. Andrew Vaughn is, is going to make the White Sox. And it's like, you know, Bobby Witt, there's a lot of talk about him. And this guy was picked ahead of those two. But it's really more about where the Orioles are than where Adley Rutschman is. I mean, he's only played 37 professional games. He is 23 years old. He is trying to play the most difficult position in baseball and learn it. We saw it with Matt Wieters. It can be a very steep learning curve. So I think this year, unless he tears the cover off the ball, double A AA and triple A, I think this year is a year for him to both succeed and fail in the minors, which is important. And then he comes back, you know, and, and in 2022, I think we'll see Ali Rutschman more in the major leagues. So you mentioned the second-tier prospects, and we're going to see a lot of those guys this coming season, right? Like people like Ryan Mountcastle and DJ Stewart, you know, if the hamstring ever heals, uh, Austin Hayes, Anthony Santander, Cedric Mullins. What is the feeling within the organization with those guys? I know everyone's different, but, like, are, are those guys viewed by the Orioles internally as true building blocks, as, you know, guys who can be a part of the next truly good Orioles team? I think the, the answer with Mountcastle is absolutely yes. This is a guy, he still has rookie status. He really came up last year and hit. He's only 23, 24 years old. So, you know, I think he's got a real shot. And I think that they believe he's got a real shot. You know, Hayes is 25, Mullins is 26, Santander is 26. Uh, they all should be major league players. They all looked good last year. Uh, Hayes is a guy to really keep your eye on because if he stays healthy, he's got all the tools. Uh, but again, these guys are 25, 26. If we're talking three more years, you know, do you want them at 28, 27, 28? Or if they are real good players, do you trade them for another group of guys coming up? I think, you know, they, they, they have talked about Santander, the possibility of, of perhaps moving him. He had a really good year last year. If he is, you know, if he stays healthy, um, he can be a legitimate right fielder for, for a contending type team. And I think they would consider that because his he's already hit arbitration. His money's going to you know start going up, and so I think that he's a guy that if they get the right package, they could deal. But will these guys be part of the future? They sure hope so. But most of them will be twenty eight years old by then. Speaking of potentially trading someone, what do you think the plan is ultimately with Trey Mancini? Well, you know it's interesting because he can be a free agent not after this season but after the next. Uh, and, you know, he's the kind of guy that you would deal. You know, he had 35 home runs in 2019. He's the kind of guy that you would move. But Trey Mancini is more than just a player on this team. Obviously, you know, we all know the situation, the, the, the uh, colon surgery, the cancer surgery in March of last year, rebuilding himself, coming all the way back. And, you know, he is, he is the team leader. He's the clubhouse leader. Uh, he is the face of the franchise. The fans love him. And frankly, you know, they could get something for him, but teams are going to want to see what he can do. And I, I think it would be 
pretty cruel, to be honest, to deal him in the middle of this year and deal him in July. I just don't – I think that that's awful for the fans, for the Orioles. I don't think Mike Elias wants to have that on on his shoulders. So I would imagine if he gets, gets dealt, it would be in, you know, at the end of this year um, after he has a good season with the Orioles. I, you know, I, I just think he's in a whole different category. If he weren't a cancer survivor coming back, likely come back player of the year, all of that stuff – I think it would be more on the table, but I think that would be kind of tough to trade him this year. It's so funny the way you put that. But, you know, it's a compliment to Mancini. He's got value. People would want him. He had that great 2019. Like, obviously, the Orioles wouldn't be trading him because they think less of him. It's just, hey, like, where we are on the win curve, this is what makes the most sense. And and I think that they have to think about that business-wise, and that's why they would have to maybe deal with Santander if they get, you know, the, the right package. But I just think it means a little bit more with Trey simply because, you know, everyone's followed this story. Fans are really involved in this guy. And this guy is one of the best guys to play the game. I mean, he is just a really good human being. And I think it would just be really deflating for a lot of fans who are going to see another 100 loss team to also see this guy who is such an inspiration be moved on. Talking with Orioles insider Dan Conley of the Athletic Baltimore. Along those lines, John Means, if he has a good 2021, do you think he gets dealt? I don't because he's still got several years. You know, he was a late bloomer. Uh, you know, he's a guy that, that still is not, you know, arbitration eligible at this point. Um, and I think that they need guys who can pitch. They need guys who can eat some innings. I expect to see a really good, uh, year out of John Means, honestly. He, um, he had a incredibly difficult 2020. And I don't mean on the field. I mean off the field, and I'm actually have a, a, a large story, a very large story on that coming tomorrow for his opening day start. Um, extremely difficult circumstances that he pitched him, he pitched under, and now I think a lot of that is is moving on now, um, and I think he's got a, a good chance. So I think at this point right now they need to build around him a little bit, and I think that at some point, you know, as his price tag goes up and he, you know, if he really establishes himself, yeah, they would deal him. But now I don't think the value to other teams is as high as the value John Means has for the Orioles right now. Two young pitchers who we expected to make the season opening rotation, Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken. Kramer makes it, but only as the number five starter. Aiken doesn't even make it, gets optioned to AAA Norfolk. Where are we with those two guys as the season gets going? Well, Aiken has has had an issue with his command, and he's always pretty much had an issue with his command. His stuff's good. He's a bulldog, a left-hander. They like him. But it's a command situation, and, and he didn't have good command this spring, so they sent him back to try and you know work on that a little bit more. Uh, I think we'll see him this year. I think there's no question that he'll get some starts in the majors this year. Kramer being number five is is more of a you know statistical thing or or like a uh, a placing thing. It really doesn't mean much except that they're probably going to watch his innings a little bit more because he is the youngest of that group, and so you know you can kind of pad your fifth starter a little bit. Uh, you know, maybe skip them here and there and that kind of deal, you know, with off days coming and all. So he's going to be in the rotation as long as he can continue to pitch solidly. He'll be in the rotation all year. You know, he's important to this franchise because he was one of the guys they got in the Manny Machado deal. They want to show that that can work. And, you know, he, he's he's had some success, you know, albeit small sample size with the Orioles. So I think as long as he pitches halfway decently, he's in this rotation all year. It wasn't a great ending to his exhibition season, but Bruce Zimmerman was so impressive up until that point, makes the rotation. Do the Orioles feel like they have something in him? They do, and, you know, we'll see. But, and it's funny because you asked about John Means, and I think John Means, besides the fact that, 
you know, that he's had some success and, and he's still cheap and everything else, he kind of is almost like a beacon of hope for a lot of these younger pitchers because he came out of nowhere. He was an 11th round draft pick. People didn't think much of him and he worked and he, you know, he got his change up right and he got, you know, and he became a pitcher. And I think that they're looking at that for other guys. When you talk to Zimmerman, he brings up Means as an example of a guy who, you know, who, who made it. And so I think the Orioles think that there is a possibility they may have a second Means here. They, they really are very, proud of the development that they have with pitchers right now in the system. Uh, Chris Holt has become the Orioles pitching coach. He had been director of pitching and worked a lot with, with analytics and such in the minors. They really feel like he's got a good program, and so they think Zimmerman could be the second byproduct of that. So the most fun topic of all, the uh, Chris Davis situation, he, he, he strains his lower back in the first game of the exhibition season, and he's been put on this 60-day injured list. Look, I don't know how else to ask this. Is this injury legit, or is this some, some phony baloney concoction to where they can just park him on the IL and he'll still get paid, but they can devote his plate appearances to other people? A couple of things. Yeah, obviously, don't follow the team that closely if you think this is a fun subject, because yeah. the guy who's written this story yeah. <laughs> for, for four or five years, it is interminable. Yeah. So, but that said, uh, you know, I think it's a, a real injury, because this is a guy who... You know, he could have, he could just walked away from the money previously. Uh, he's got two more years left, roughly $46 million on that if you don't count, um, you know, the, the way they do their, their transactions. So you're looking at about $46 million, um, without the furls. And so he, he made a whole point to us that, you know, that he had changed his swing some and he had, you know, everything else. He's not just going to go for two games. I mean, two at bats in one game and then be done with it and be okay with going on the IL. That's not who Chris Davis is. Uh, you know, we always joke in Baltimore about the Ovaldo Jimenez pothole um, that Jimenez stepped <laughs> in, and, you know, he was gone for a, a month or two. This is not – they did not have a pothole dug at first base as far as we know. Um, Chris has – we haven't spoke to Chris since he went on the, the IL. We haven't spoke to him since he got hurt. However, you know, because it's all been done through Zooms. However, Brandon Hyde said – Relate to us that, that Chris Davis is expecting to rehab this and be back. So he does not want to go out like the way this is, has happened. And I think if he feels that there's any chance of him to be able to come back, he's going to try. So to answer your question in a long-winded way, I do believe it's a legit injury. I do not know if it is a career-ending one or not. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what I was getting at was not so much that like he came up with it, but that the team kind of said, this is what we're going to do with you. Because, you know, we kind of see where this is at. But, no, this is legit from what you can get. Well, I mean, obviously to do that, and it's been done before. Let's not act like that hasn't. It's been done a lot of times before. But, I mean, both sides have to agree to that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. And I don't think that he's there to agree to that kind of thing. He wants to come back and play. He always has. I mean, if if that were the case where he was agreed that, well, you know, we'll just do two two at-bats, I'm done, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll just take the money. I don't think he would have gone through everything in the offseason, come back. He's got three beautiful little daughters. I, I think he's legitimately trying to change the legacy of this contract as much as he possibly can. And so because of that, I think it is legit. But I haven't seen it, so we'll see. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, final topic for you, and there's actually a lot of discussion about this in the D.C. area because of the potential implications of it, but this thing that's been out there for years that the Angelos family will be selling the Orioles once Peter passes. Um, what, what's your sense on that? Do you think the Orioles will be for sale inevitably? Okay, so this is my 21st season covering the Baltimore Orioles. One of the first stories I did was a rumor that the Angelos family may sell. Oh, really? 
That was in 2001. Okay. So that said, uh, there are things that point that it's possible that a sale could occur. There are a lot of reasons why it won't anytime soon. Obviously, you know, Peter Anderson is in failing health. There's things as far as the state is concerned, part of that. We all know the massing situation and that, you know, that has to be resolved for a buyer to want to be part of this, obviously. Uh, I just think that there's, there are many reasons why they could sell. There certainly are some things when you look at the team and say they look like there's a cash flow problem. But I think the, the other part of it is this has been in that family and, and I believe that, you know, they genuinely want to have it stay in the family. Whether they will or not, I don't know. So my point is this is every couple of years, really it's becoming more and more, uh, you know, frequent, but every couple of years we hear this and, you know, t- different groups are lining up and all that other stuff and it doesn't happen. So until I get some, some actually concrete evidence that they're really seriously considering this, um, I'm just going to let it go as, as, you know, it's the rumor. Like I said, it's a 21-year-old rumor as far as I'm concerned. Well, one day we'll have resolution on the Orioles' ownership, the Masson dispute, and Chris Davis, and we'll all be happier for it. So we look forward to that day. Anyway, uh, Dan, really appreciate you coming on so much, man. All the best to you. No problem. Take care. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Don't forget a big, big installment of the Al Galdi podcast on Friday. We'll have so much to get into off the events of Thursday. Ron Rivera speaking live Zoom press conference Thursday morning at 9 o'clock. We will have the big Capitals-Islanders game to post game, and we will get into whatever transpires on opening day, including the latest in this Nationals COVID-19 situation. Maybe, just maybe, Masson does come out uh, with its app. And, oh yeah, there was this very late on Wednesday night. Multiple reports that the Nationals opening night opponent, the New York Mets, had agreed with shortstop Francisco Lindor on a 10-year, $341 million contract extension. There'd been a lot of talk in New York in recent weeks about whether a Lindor extension was going to get done off the Mets having traded for Lindor and Carlos Carrasco this past offseason. The deal is done. Uh, Lindor was set to be a free agent after the 2021 season, this will be the third richest contract in MLB history. So yeah, if you're a Nationals fan, and yeah, if you want them to lock up Juan Soto, the price is only going up. I say it all the time. Today's overpay is tomorrow's bargain. Francisco Lindor, 10 years, $341 million. The San Diego Padres in February extended their shortstop, Fernando Tatis Jr., 14 years, $340 million. If you want to retain the player, if you want to lock up the player who's young and really good, you got to pay the piper. You got to come strong. You got to come correct. You got to go 300 plus million dollars strong. Now, the player has to want to do the deal. And obviously, Lindor and Tatis wanted to do their deals. We don't know if Soto wants to do a long-term contract, especially given that his agent is Scott Boris. But this remains a big-time macro storyline to be following with the Nationals. You tell me what you think. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Subscribe, rate, review. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. All right, that's enough. That's enough. Make it stop.